Kia ora. This program is brought to you by Wellington Access Radio. Get your voice heard. Collaborative Voices from Community Networks Aotearoa. Conversations and interviews on all kinds of subjects of interest to the community and voluntary sector. Listen up for Collaborative Voices from Wellington Access Radio. Welcome to Collaborative Voices. I'm Ros Rice and I work for Community Networks Aotearoa. And this is our first programme for 2023. I hope you all had a fantastic holiday and you've come back with the passion and excitement that we have because we're right into a new project. And the person who's helping us on this project is a fascinating woman who we've, I'm very proud to say, I think we now consider a friend. Um, and that is our friend, uh, Jane Horan. And Jane, welcome to the program. Morena, <laughs> you're a koto. So Jane, we're going to talk about you because you're pretty fascinating and I've got lots of information about you here. But you're, we've, we've brought you in, uh, contracted you in to do research for us. But um, let's talk about your research career. Now, to start with, um, you call yourself an economic anthropologist. Can you explain to people what is an economic anthropologist? (laughs) Right. So an economic anthropologist is somebody who looks at economy, but uh, uh, controversially, we include people in the analysis of economy and we consider that... Um, human beings are at the centres at, at the centre of economy is the is basically the difference between normal economics and what I do as an economic. Yeah, I was going to say, what is the controversial side to that? <laughs> and that is because I'm presuming normal economics simply looks at the figures. Yeah, and there's I mean that's an oversimplification too. To be fair, so any any economists out there, but. Um, in New Zealand, we've got the GDP versus the Living Standards Framework. The Living Standards Framework is a more holistic process. I'm I'm into the holistic side of how to analyse economy and what's going on in an economic an economic context. So let me talk about a little bit of what led you to this career. Now, to start with, you've got a PhD in social anthropology, yeah. which what is social anthropology as compared to just anthropology? Okay. So I'll first of all, I started off studying. I went, I, I, I had a, a first university career where I started a science degree, but it didn't go anywhere. It wasn't for me. Went mm. travelling for five years and I discovered this subject called anthropology and I was really interested in archaeology in particular. Came back to New Zealand um, in my late later 20s and started studying anthropology at Auckland University and started mostly archaeology. And then I realised that living people were more interesting than dead people. <laughs> so I, um, um, so and, and anthropology is made up of archaeology, social anthropology, ethnomusicology, medical, biological anthropology, etc. Mm. So I found social anthropology the most interesting because it's about how human beings connect with one another through social context. So, and that's what makes up cultural context. So I just found that really interesting. And then I did a a paper in my third year, I think it was, that was an economic anthropology paper. And it was with a particularly great lecturer that I really um, enjoyed being in his classes. And it was what sort of set me off on my path for my MA 
process, my, my MA in anthropology and then subsequently my PhD, which I did both of those subsequent degrees at Auckland University too. All right. And you've, since then you've been, t- you have taught at the university? I taught, I finished my PhD in 2012. I graduated and I, um, by then I was a single parent and I've been a single parent for coming up on 16 years. I've now got a 20 year old and a almost 18 year old. Mm. So I taught, but I decided, made the decision to stay in Auckland because because of what my kids needed. So I uh, looked for academic jobs to start with and then I couldn't find one in New Zealand. Traditionally, you go offshore when you finish mm. a PhD and yes. go, go somewhere else. But so I decided to, to head into contract researching and what's called applied anthropology, which actually is really cool. I really enjoy <laughs> it. It's, it's inter- incredibly interesting. So let's talk about some of the research and uh, part of your research career and some of yeah. the research that you've done. And I'm just looking here at some of some fascinating and um, if we go right back, I'm just looking here at your, your CV. Oh, goodness me. We could actually go back to 2016. Earlier? Earlier, probably, but... Yeah, so let's look at the first thing you did and then look at some of the latest things you've done. So we go back um, to your, in fact, your MA thesis. Yeah. Because um, that thesis was based on literature derived from academic sources, government reports and publications from NGOs. Now... What was the research about? That was, um, I went to a presentation by one of the lecturers at, at university at that time who had done a, a research report for MFAT, I think it was MFAT, or, or, and a couple of the other development agencies in the Pacific, Australian, AusAid, I think it was at the time, and they mm. had put money into Tonga to, um, because their, their thinking was they, Tongan women make textiles um, and wouldn't it be a good idea if those Tongan women made those textiles so that they could be sold? So that was their logic. The woman who I went to, Dr Penny Schofel, was saying, well, in her report she said, well, that didn't make sense because actually women won't sell them because the textiles that Tongan women make are for ceremonial distribution. So these are the large nata, uh, um, tapa cloths called natu and fine mats. You just don't sell them. You give them to family and that accrues far more Im- important sort of valuables as in family connections and also if you... They'd be get, like Māori Tonga. Exa- it is, they are, absolutely mm, that. Mm. But in these exchange processes, for example, a funeral, somebody, uh, you're given... Uh, mats are accrued. You give mats to the to the to the family of the dead person, mm. and then eventually you'll get that back. Mm. And then I went on to do a, a PhD with the. Um, so uh, just sorry, just going back to that um, development project. So the development project was considered a failure because these women didn't sell their their right. textiles, but in fact they did because they but they were using other mechanisms that weren't recognisable from a mes, um, Western right. mercantile sort of frame of reference. So it wasn't a failure at all. In uh, fact, they were very successful. They were very they were successful. In mm. fact, they were also accruing money because women in Tonga would organise big exchange events with women in Tongan women 
in New Zealand, for example, and the Tongan women would provide fine mats and tapa cloth, and the women in New Zealand would um, provide the valuable that they could get hold of here, which hap- which was um, things like refrigerators, but also cash money. So there would be this exchange. It just wouldn't be more like a green economy. Well, sort of, but it's a, it's very much in a, in a Pacific Island context. Uh, context, mm. and so there's this exchange and the value, the money of value is relegated in terms of the hierarchy of valuables. So you just give what you can and there's this foods exchange as well. So I did a similar project in some ways for my PhD thesis, which but that was looking at the Cook Islands ceremonial right. economy. And I was able to, so my master's thesis was just looking at sort of library resources. Right. For my PhD, I was able to go to. I went backwards and forwards to the Cook Islands and to Australia. Yeah, and hung out with Cook Island women. And I see another thing that you did, um, which is really interesting, and I'm I'm not quite clear about it, but this was in 2015, where you worked with Sam Brody and Fonterra. So that was a project on um, uh, a milk powder that Fonterra were um, piloting. It's called, uh, and they were. The decision making was uh, they were making assumptions about stay at home mothers. Yes. And so I was sent out to, and, and valid assumptions as well up to a point, but things had changed from the people making the assumptions didn't necessarily understand the contemporary lives of stay at home mothers at that time. And I had been a stay at home mum, and I they sent me out to do these three hour long interviews. And I sat with these women. And I had been a stay-at-home mother five or six years earlier. And what was different between their experience and my experience was the um, reality of Facebook and social internet. media. So internet yeah. and the, the accessibility. So, so stay-at-home mothers were wholly connected in and there was one particular woman who was um, uh, had her cell phone beeping and squeaking and all sorts of alerts. So there was this whole project. So this, I was able to give these whole a whole new set of insights that nuanced the reality of what was going on in that context, which evolved their understanding and wow. allowed them to to do that. Just one comment about the Pacific research that I did. Um, I was very privileged to do um, research with Pacific Islanders, and as I'm Papa or Pakeha, so. Uh, I'm not doing that sort of research anymore because there's too many Pacific Island uh, researchers who can do a, yeah. a, a arguably a better job than I can do. So and we've only got a couple of minutes, and I right. haven't even covered no. the six pages I've got of things that you've done. Um, but there's one that just really caught my eye. I mean, you've been doing research for a long, long time yeah. over all kinds of interesting things, and the one that just caught my eye, which I've now just lost again, um, but it was about. Um, sexism in the insurance industry? No, um, um, commercial property commercial industry, property. the incidence of sexism and bias that exists in that sector. That must have been fascinating. That was yeah. in 2017. That was, and you were doing it with Bailey's Real Estate. Well, the, the, it was with, I was working with um, Professor Deborah Levy at the property department in, um, yeah. in, in the business school. And it was her idea to pr- form that project. And it was fascinating the toxicity yeah. that female uh, graduates of, of, of the property department at the Auckland Business School were experiencing. But some are, some weren't either because of the 
structures of allyship that existed in some companies, but certainly not all. So yeah. that was a fascinating project. And I haven't even talked about, like, um, perhaps we can just quickly touch on this when we come back after our song, but I'm really interested in talking to, uh, to you about um, one of your um, publications about menopause can be a battle, but the war is still about patriarchy. <laughs> so let's quickly talk about that when we come back, because that makes me laugh. Um, and in the meantime, we're going to go to a song. Can you tell me the song that you've chosen? Um, this is uh, called um, Dead of Night by um, Orville Peck. I saw Orville Peck perform at the Tuning Fork in Auckland a couple of years ago. And uh, he's a gay cowboy and he wears a, a mask and he's just got the most beautiful voice. Amazing. <laughs> And what a shame we had to fade that beautiful, beautiful voice. What a great song. I'm going to look into that 
musician. Um, but very quickly, 30-second conversation before we get into the second part of the show. And just in case any of you have forgotten, I'm talking to Dr. Jane Horan, who is a researcher who um, CNA has contracted to do research for us, but we'll talk more about that in a minute. But um, this um, publication you did in 2021, Menopause Can Be a Battle, But the War Is Still About the Patriarchy. Okay, 30 seconds on menopause. <clears throat> I, um, and patriarchy. And patriarchy, yes, don't forget patriarchy. <laughs> yeah. um, back in the, in the first lockdown, the Gender Justice Collective did a survey of um, views from women predominantly. Yeah. Part of that was they were collecting data on menopause and I was talking one day to the, the extraordinary Angela Meyer who was one of the leads in the Gender Justice Collective and she um, suggested I write something for Ensemble magazine about using their data about menopause and so I did. I used some of their data. But the, my, one of the points that I was making in that article was that uh, menopause is, um, is bio- it's a biological phenomenon, but it's also a cultural phenomenon. So how women going through menopause are perceived in, a given, in any given society is a function of cultural context. And in the, in the context that we live in here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, uh, for Pākehā women anyway, it's patriarchal. You don't often hear um, uh, older women in um, in Māoridom are, are lauded, whereas older women, older white women, are kind of are considered to be declining as they as they head into menopause. Mm. So that's what that article was about. It was a fun thing to write. So, <laughs> oh, I love it. Okay, <laughs> not that you know I'm you know in age ageing or anything, but. <laughs> Me neither. No, Me neither, no, Ross. Me no, neither. we're very young. Um, <clears throat> right, why have we contracted you? And the answer is, for many people who are listening to this program, you may be aware that we're doing a whole lot of work at the moment about the problems that NGOs are having uh, working with banks. And um, the, the easiest way to explain it is if we say to you, have you tried lately to change the signatories of your board members mm-hmm. on your cheque account after your latest AGM? And the majority of you will gla- grasp your heads and groan because it's turned into a bit of a nightmare. Banks are not user-friendly. Um, we can, I think we can definitely say that. But we knew that people were having multitudinous problems doing their banking and we decided that we can't just go and whinge about it to anybody and everybody unless we have good data. So what we've done is we've got a survey on our website and I would like to tell you all if you're an organisation who has had a problem with a bank that has held you up from being able to access your bank account even for a short time, we'd like to know. So our Website address is communitynetworksaotearoa.org.nz. Communitynetworksaotearoa, all one word, .org.nz. Please go and put your experiences onto our survey, which, by the way, is anonymous. However, um, we needed somebody to take a lot of the data from that website and um, extrapolated into uh, good research results and that's what we've hired Jane to do but in the course of that this has got this whole subject's got bigger 
it started as a, a small snowball, and now it's a very, very huge snowball running down a running down a mountain because it's just grown and grown and grown. The problem is so widespread, and so many people have had issues um, in so many different walks of our sector that uh, we've got multiple people behind us now. We've got other organisations uh, who are backing us. Uh, CAB New Zealand is now backing the research. Funders are backing the research. Aussie um, uh, New Zealand is backing the research. Finns Funding Institute New Zealand is backing the research. Lots of people are now coming in behind the work that we're doing. So we'll just take the next 20 or so minutes just to discuss the banking project. So, Jane, when you came into it, uh, is what you're now, where you're at now with having, we have had so many conversations and we've had lots, we've gone out to see lots of people. We could maybe talk about some of the people we've been to see. But um, your thoughts when you came in as compared to your thoughts now? Um, yeah, it's kind of blown my mind. It's a really, really interesting project because, and it's been helpful to think about in terms of what do we want to achieve. And ideally, we just find help. We we produce insights that help remove barriers for um, the NGO full purpose um, array of organisations in this country, which number in the thousands and thousands. Um, remove barriers for them to to be able to bank, mm. so that they can. So banking becomes no longer a big issue. So that those organisations that effectively make up civil society and underline so much in, in our society and also our economy just can get on and do their mahi. So these are organisations that you know, help me out here, Rod. So everything from table tennis clubs to <laughs> sports um, clubs to, to sports clubs to organisations, government providers yep. to organisations that look after people with. With, yeah, like to community access radio. Yeah, yeah. Tony, our tech, has helpfully pointed out. Yeah. In fact, the National Organisation for Community Access Radio is one of our members. Yep. So it's it's not for profit organisations working in communities yeah. for good purpose. So these are organisations that have come together for whatever reason that allow people to step outside of their homes and congregate and collaborate and be part of communities, which... But this they're sector. also organisations that can come into your homes. Yeah, absolutely. When you yeah. can't actually yeah. get out there yeah. and they often provide that yeah. um, connection to human yeah. beings. That and in this area, era of COVID, well, I'm not going to say post-COVID because we're not really there yet, mm. but this sort of the importance of community and uh collaboration and, and sort of con community connection is more important than ever before, really. We had a really interesting discussion with someone yesterday about, in fact, how the community and voluntary sector or the for-purpose sector, whichever term you wish to use, is, in fact, an essential part of our democratic structures. Because yeah. it allows diversity of opinion to be... Uh, to sit a, to sit alongside the, the variations of opinion, but it, and the charitable structures, for example, provide transparency and modes of of collaboration and community and community that uh, allow longevity. So human beings can be a bit naughty and a bit unkind to one another. So legal structures allow that to minimise that, I guess. So mm -hmm. having civil society, having charities, and 
the array of these different types of organisations allowed to proliferate and to thrive is a really, really important part not of only our that, world. Not only that, um, those, those organisations um, are, are integral parts of um, uh, well-being. Absolutely. And, and well-being is the buzzword at the moment, yeah. but... Because we have a, a treasury that's trying to, that's that's developed the living standards framework, which is a, a really kind of amazing sort of institution, really. It's trying to move from just focusing on GDP as an indicator of the wealth of and the and the health, of an, eco- health. Mm. Of, of an economy to something that's far broader and more holistic, which is an economic anthropologist I find fascinating. Right. Now I'm going to just cut us through yep. to... Um, we didn't used to have these problems with banks. They've only happened in recent times. And we have cut to what we think the main issue is. Do we want to talk about that Yeah, well, very briefly? Very briefly. So part of this is to do with anti-money laundering laws, um, and the which came about really ramped up after 9-11. Mm. And they're very important. And they're, they're international, aren't they? That's international. New Zealand is part of an international agreement around that. They are important. But there are unintended consequences of the particular structure of law that we've got in this country at the moment. And there's a review going on of that legislation. So we're hoping to create insights about the impact that those laws are having on this, on the um, not-for-profit sector. So one of the examples we've had in our, um, our survey is 10 organisations who wanted to do a collaborative project and wanted to open a single bank account to put their money from their funder into that bank account. And the bank that they went to insisted that every single governance person in each organisation had to go to the bank in person to give proof of identity. And why they did that is because that was a requirement in the anti-money laundering legislation. But what it actually meant is 78 people up and down the country had to go to the bank in person to give their proof of identity. So that's an example of how silly some of this legislation the banks have taken some of this legislation. And the, the, these unintended consequences, and there's issues around um, uh, organisations losing access to bank accounts that they've already set up. Um, Stephen Moe, a, a lawyer from Christchurch, who's um, a very involved in the not-for-profit sector, was saying that um, it's easy to set up a charity, but it's very, very difficult to get a bank account. So there's this this whole process around banking money and accessing money, and is just because money has to flow. It's not right. a problem that money flows. Just allow banking to um, to be effort more more effortless. Effort, make it less effortful. We, we so. have got the definite impression that the banks don't have a concept of how large and how impactful our sector is. Yeah. And um, we were talking to somebody yesterday. We've been having a lot of meetings with a lot of interesting people, including government departments and uh, the banking ombudsman and uh, the Commerce Commission, to say to name but a few. So we're really going for it. But... Um, uh, the person we were talking to yesterday has done a really in-depth analysis of um, statistics out of the charity services website um, and their um, register. And he believes that the um, community and voluntary sector actually has an in- – is it an income that he's looking at? or uh, The equity. In equity yeah. of, what, $28 billion, yeah. which is more than the top three ranked companies – 
equity, mm. the top three ranked companies in New Zealand equity. That's what he said, wasn't it? Uh, I'd have to go back and check that. So, but but but, but the point the, is, it's huge. The point is, and, it's, and we don't think the banks yeah. get that. And but certainly, people don't get it either. So, there's the importance of allowing these organisations in this sector to bank without without so many issues would be a make help society enormously and help our economy as well. Right. So we, we could actually talk about this subject, as we have been for the last few days, for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours, mm. and there's so much we're discovering. Mm. But um, I'd like to just say thank you, Jane, for coming in and having this conversation. Before I close off, I want to remind you of the um, website. You go to communitynetworksaotearoa.org.nz and then you go to other work and then there's uh, Better Banking for All, I think, is the tab. Yeah. And go to it and fill in our survey if you've had any problems whatsoever with your banks because we want to know what your experiences are so that the research that Jane does can come through with a true and honest um, data about how this how people are being affected at the moment. And once you fill in the survey, you can opt to be interviewed. So um, we're doing interviews, and more in-depth interviews with around 20 organisations to get more sort of finer detail, gritty detail about sort of mm. the context of their relationship with their banks. Yes, so please, please do that. And any yeah. other questions that you might have, you can always give us a ring at Community Networks Aotearoa. So Jane, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. That programme was brought to you by Wellington Access Radio. Get your voice heard. Thanks New Zealand On Air for funding accessmedia.nz.